This week's sermon and podcast was recorded as a special video production throughout the course of a trip to Cote d'Ivoire, West Africa. If you're able to watch the sermon, we encourage you to do that to appreciate the visuals and the journey that the sermon takes you on. You can do that at southfellowship.org. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Well, hi, South Fellowship Church. My name is Ryan Paulson, and I'm the lead pastor here at South, and I'm sitting in Denver International Airport with Aaron Bjorklund, and we are heading over to Ivory Coast in Africa to uh, help with a pastors and leaders conference over there. And we're really excited about the way God's going to move on this trip, but we also didn't want to miss the first Sunday of Advent there at South. And so what we decided was that we would bring you a video at certain points during our trip, and it's going to be our sermon for this morning. And so if you have your notes or if you got one of the devotions when you walked in this morning, there's a section for sermon notes in there. I would encourage you to to break it out because uh, we're going to jump into our first Sunday of Advent. Advent is this really interesting word. It, it actually, the English word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, and it means coming or visit. It's a, a four-week season in the church calendar where churches all around the globe prepare for the birth of Christ. It, it's a time that's epitomized by really three postures of the soul. Um, one of those postures is intentional waiting that we remember that there's this sort of transcendent longing within us for, for something more, and we allow ourselves to hope. Uh, the second posture is anticipating, that, that this emptiness that we sometimes feel in our soul, we expect that God will come in and, and he will meet us and, and he will fill us. And then there's also this posture of preparation, that we take some inventory of our life, We take time to think and we invite the Spirit of God to work in us and move in us that we would become a little bit different people over the course of the next four weeks. No one really knows when the season of Advent started. The Church Universal has been practicing it, uh, we know, since 567 at least. It was in that year when a, a number of monks decided to undertake a season of fasting leading up to the birth of Christ. And their practice of fasting was adopted by the church to eventually become the season that we now know and we now celebrate as Advent. As I said, one of the main postures is a posture of waiting. So it makes sense that we would film this portion of this sermon in an airport where literally everybody here is waiting. They're in between. They're not where they're going yet. And they've left where they've been. It feels a little bit like that's the way life is, doesn't it? I read a study earlier this week, and here's what it said. It said human beings spend approximately six months of their lives waiting for things, waiting in line for things. Can you imagine that? For the average lifespan, that averages out to about three days a year that you and I spend waiting in line. The average person in the same study said spends about 43 days on hold in the course of their life with an automated, automated customer service. So on the phone, waiting. You've been there, and I've been there. Uh, there's also those who take the bus to work or the train to work. This study estimated that they will spend 27 days of their life waiting on a platform for the next train or for the next bus to come in and eventually take them where they want to go. 
Um, my guess is if you've driven up Broadway or down Broadway over the last few months, you found yourself at some point in time waiting. And just when you thought the wait was over, they decided to tear it up and do it again. Awesome. But we can relate, can't we? Because we don't just wait in cars and we don't just wait in lines. But we also wait on things that are more meaningful and deeper than that. I mean, I've talked to a few of you over the course of the last few months who are waiting to get pregnant. I've met with a number of you who are waiting for a beloved child to, to come back, who's wandered away from, from you or from maybe from the faith. Uh, there's a number of you that are waiting on that job to come through, and you're just not sure if it's going to happen. Or, or maybe you're waiting on the healing to come, <laughs> and you're hoping, and you're anticipating, and you're preparing. See, that's what Advent's all about. It's all about waiting, anticipating, preparing, because every human person waits. In fact, I would encourage you to write this down. Uh, everybody waits. Waiting is a universal human reality, but waiting on God is an intentional choice. There's a, a wall that we built in the church lobby. It's the black wood wall, and there's little gold note cards, and uh, we're calling it the waiting wall. And uh, sometime today, as you walk out of the service, I would encourage you, uh, just write a one-sentence little description of, here's during this Advent season, here's what I'm waiting for, and what I'm choosing to wait intentionally for. Um, as I've thought about it, there's two challenges or roadblocks that we often have toward waiting intentionally on God. Uh, the first thing is that in order to wait intentionally, we need to release control. I, I, I'm reminded even in this airport that I have very little control. I have little control over whether or not my plane's going to come in on time. I have little control over whether or not the, all the mechanics are going to work right or the pilot's going to do his job right. But it's a, it's a good reminder that, you know, when you think about life, that we're in control of fewer things than we'd like to think. So when we wait, if we wait well, we release control to God. And we say, God, this is in your court, not mine. The second challenge we have in waiting is that we often wait for the wrong thing. As a pastor, I've met with so many people who are in the midst of pain and in the midst of loss, and, and they're waiting on God, but their question is, God, why? You know, why did, why did this divorce happen? Why did, we, why did we lose this child? God, why, 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 why? I can remember when my mom passed away. That was the question I was asking. God, why did this 58-year-old woman who, whom I dearly loved, who was a saint, why, why did she pass away? And, and it hit me one day that if I had the answer to that question, it wouldn't matter. <laughs> that to know why is actually not a deep enough question. In order to wait well, I don't think we need to answer the question why. I think what we're actually waiting for is not an answer given to us, but an arm around us. We don't need the objective, here's why this happens. We need to know that someone's in it with us specifically we need to know that God is in it with us. I can remember the worst night of my life. Kelly and I had just had a student from our youth group 
uh, die in, in our arms. And we were, we got home and reality started to set in. And the reality of grief and lament and loss and questions and pain were um, almost overbearing. It was like, if I could describe it, it was a deafening silence in our house. And then there was a knock at our door. It was 11 o'clock at night. And there were two of our friends who we loved dearly showed up. Unannounced and uninvited, they just came in and they sat with us. And at that moment, I didn't know that that's what I need, but needed, but as they were there and as they cried with us, and they didn't have any answers. They just had an arm around us. And if we're going to be people who wait intentionally and who wait intentionally on God, we're going to need to choose to say, God, we release control. This is in your court, but we also need to wait for the right thing. We need to wait for God and we need to wait for his presence and we need to prepare and anticipate and expect that he's going to meet us in the darkest of valleys and on the highest of mountains. This year, we are joining with churches all around the globe by using lectionary passages to journey through this season of Advent. And we've chosen to use the passages from the prophet and poet Isaiah. And there's a lot of debate about when Isaiah was written, but the passage we're looking at today is either a vision of exile or it's Isaiah standing in exile when his people have been displaced. It's interesting because now we're in the northern part of the country of Ivory Coast and this is actually a, a part of the country that's been in exile recently. Uh, they've had, because of political strife and rebellion, they've had things ripped away from them and so they know what this people was going through. You've got to imagine what it might have been like in 587 for these Israelites, these people who uh, loved Yahweh but were deviating from his teaching. And what they saw in 587 was that the Babylonian army came in and completely sacked and destroyed their city. And they marched them off. So leaving their homes, oftentimes separated from their families, to say that this was a, a devastating incident for Israel is an understatement. And so Isaiah's writing from within exile to try to paint a picture of what God might do if they would turn back and they would trust him. See, see, here's the power of exile. The power of exile causes people to relinquish the things that they're holding on to. But the danger of exile is that they would start to become accustomed to the Babylonian values, the Babylonian way of life, and the Babylonian way of worship. And so Isaiah prophetically speaks into that. And he joins, he sort of is the voice of this nation as they cry out to God. And listen to his exile cry in Isaiah chapter 63, verse 15. Here's what he writes. If you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there. Isaiah chapter 63, verse 15. And he's talking to God and he says, Look down from heaven and see from your beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? I mean, can you sort of just imagine him going like, remember for a moment that you're God. 
And look at what's happening to your people. Remember your zeal and your might, the stirring of your inner parts and your compassion. They're held back from me. God, you're, you're distant. And Isaiah's prayer and his plea in Isaiah 63 is, God, look down. But if you go one chapter over, and I'd encourage you to just uh, flip over there in your Bible, Isaiah chapter 64, verses 1 and 2, we have one of the greatest prayers, I think, recorded in the scriptures. And listen to what the prophet Isaiah prays. Oh, that you, oh God, that you would rend the heavens and come down. This uh, word rend is like to, to vehemently tear open, that you would tear open the heavens and that you would enter the pain, that you'd enter the exile, that you'd enter the disappointment, the displacement, the disillusionment, that you would enter in, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles and brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known among your adversaries that the nations might tremble at your presence. See, Isaiah's prayer starts with look down and it ends with come down. See, here's what Isaiah recognizes. There's moments in life where we don't need an answer given to us. We don't need God to look down from a distance and say, this is why, or even act from a distance. There's moments where we don't need an answer given to us. We need an arm around us. And what Isaiah is pointing out, and, and I'd encourage you to write this down, is that our deepest hope is God's fullest presence. Our deepest hope is God's fullest presence, or say it another way, God's fullest presence is humanity's deepest hope. I mean, have you ever prayed that prayer? God, enter in. God, come down. And enter, enter, into, this, enter into this marriage because it's dry and it's broken and we don't know if we're going to make it. Or, or God, enter into this relational situation because I know I need to forgive, but I just don't have the power within myself to do it. God, enter into this job situation because we don't know how we're going to make it one more month. I love this because desperate situations stir in the human soul passionate prayers. Rend the heavens and come down. God, enter into this space. I love the way that one pastor named Jeff Mannion says it. He says, desperate prayers may be an indication of spiritual health rather than a sign of spiritual deficiency. So maybe, maybe this Advent season, you start to recognize, man, I don't need an answer given to me. I need an arm around me. And so God, I'm going to, I'm going to plead with you. Come down, enter in. Enter into my heart, enter into my soul, enter into this marriage, enter into this house, enter into this workplace, into this neighborhood. God, come down. Isaiah writes about it. Advent invites us to wait on it. And Christmas reminds us that that is a prayer that God loves to answer in the person and the work of Jesus. And this passage in Isaiah goes on to unpack for us what it actually looks like to position ourselves to receive the presence that is the deepest longing in our soul. What does that look like to wait well, to be a people who wait on God's presence well? And Isaiah tells us, 
In Isaiah 64, if you have your Bible open there, just go down to verses three and four, and here's what Isaiah says. He says, when you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From old, no one's ever heard or perceived by ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait on him. So notice what Isaiah is doing. He's pulling this theme of waiting and of God's presence into the same picture for an Israelite community that's in exile. And here's what he wants to do. He wants them to remember, he wants to remind them that their portion of the story that they're living right now isn't the way the story started and it will not be the way the story ends. He goes, remember you guys, remember, God came down and met us on Mount Sinai. Remember that God led us through the Red Sea and he was faithful in bringing us out of slavery. Remember God gave us a king like David and Solomon who built the temple. Remember God has done great things in the past. So think about for an Israelite community that's in exile in Babylon, their hometown is in plunder, that Isaiah is inviting them to the, a subversive act to remember, God, you've been at work, you've been faithful, and your hand is not off us even now. And so one of the ways we wait well, and I'd encourage you to write this down in your bulletin or in the Advent devotional that you got when you walked in. One of the ways we wait well is by remembering God's past faithfulness. It's only memory that can allow you to walk faithfully with God because the present dictates to you that, man, all that's in front of you is pain and hurt and sorrow. So Isaiah calls out the powerful act of memory, but he's not alone. Uh, listen to the way that the psalmist writes it in Psalm 77, uh, 77 verses 10 through 15. Here's what the psalmist says. He says, then, then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of most high God. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You've made known your might among the peoples. With your arm, you redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. See, if you read through the Psalms, you'll have the psalmist remembering, God, you've been faithful in every generation, as if to say, even though we're in the valley right now, you haven't failed us yet. You will not fail us now, and you will not fail us tomorrow. If you want to wait well on God, you have to remember well. And so I'd encourage you, maybe it's remembering what God's done by reading the scriptures. Maybe it's remembering what God's done by listening to testimonies of people who've been walking with him for longer than you. Maybe, maybe it's looking back at your own life and intentionally tracing the fingerprints of God through some dark seasons and through some really high mountains but remember and do it intentionally. It's one of the ways we wait well and we call on the presence of God to meet us. Here, here's the second thing Isaiah says, verses 64, uh, chapter 64, verses five and six. He says, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you and your ways. Behold, we were angry and we sinned. In our sins, we've been a long time, and shall we be saved? 
We've become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Uh, So there's two things that Isaiah is remembering. One is that he and his fellow Israelites are completely mortal people, that one day they will not be, in contrast to God, who is immortal, who has always been. But here's the other thing he's remembering. He's remembering that he and his people have failed. They've sinned. That God really clearly said to them, I'm inviting you back all throughout the first portion of Isaiah. Don't forsake your God. Continue to worship him. Come back to worship him. Forsake the idols and come and worship the true God. And they didn't. And so God brought them off into exile. It's really interesting. If you flip back one chapter in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 63, verse 17, listen to what Isaiah wrote then. (laughs) Oh Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? One chapter earlier, Isaiah's like, God, this is your fault. You made us do this. And now in Isaiah 64, he owns it. And people that wait well, They don't blame God for their sin. They come to God and they admit it. They confess it. So the first thing we do in waiting is we remember God's past faithfulness. The second thing we do is we admit our personal shortcomings. See, sometimes I think we have this idea that if we're good, if we obey, then we can control God that we can say to God, God, you need to show up and you need to move and you need to do this and you need to do that because I've been good. And what Isaiah says is, nah, you can't control God and you're not as good as you think. In fact, he uses really, really vulgar language to explain just how dirty and offensive their sin is. He goes, it's, it's, like, a, it's like a menstrual cloth before you, God. It's, it's filthy. And yet, and yet his prayer is, God, come down. God, meet us in our mess, in our filth, and in our despair. God, meet us. But in order to do that, you need to admit, God, I've sinned. I I have not followed you perfectly. And that actually, that posture of humility prepares us to host his presence. It's not our righteousness and our perfection that prepares us. It's our humility coming before him and saying, man, I I don't deserve this. And yet, God, you enter in. Here's the next thing Isaiah says in verse 7. Uh, 64 verse 7, he says, There's no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. I, I love the prophet poet Isaiah. God, you've, you've hidden your face from us. You're playing, you're playing hide and seek with us, God. Um, just the other day, uh, my youngest son, Reed, four years old, came up to me and said, Dad, let's play hide and seek. And so I said to him, all right, let's play. Where are you going to hide? And he says, I'm not telling you where I'm going to hide. And I'm like, oh, sensei, you are learning. Good work. And he says, but after that, after I praised him, he said, but... It might be in this house. And he had this little like portable Avengers house, little tent that he hides in. And I'm like, oh man, you blew it. My my four-year-old son, Reed, is terrible at hide and seek. 
but sometimes it feels like hide and seek is God's profession. It's, it seems like, it feels like God is really good at hide and seek, doesn't it? Isaiah voices it. He says, God, you have hidden your face from us, or at least it feels like that. See, here's what people who wait well do. Uh, first, they say back to God, God, we remember your past faithfulness. Second, they voice their shortcomings or their sin. And third, they honestly voice their frustration and their disappointments. They say to God, God, I wish you'd come in at this moment and acted. I don't know why you didn't, but it feels like you're hiding. I mean, have you, have you ever stood amongst the ruins of your faith and prayed, but felt like you were only talking to yourself? Like your prayer was just hitting the ceiling? Isaiah feels it. Um, the psalmist feels it in Psalm 13. Read Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2. Why are you hiding your face from us, O God? Why are you so far off? Why don't you hear? Why don't you respond? I love the way that the prominent author, Philip Yancey, put it when he said this in his book, Reaching for the Invisible God. He wrote, I experienced the same sense of abandonment. Just as I was making spiritual progress, advancing beyond childish faith to the point where I felt I could help others. And suddenly, the darkness descended. And for an entire year, my prayers seemed to go nowhere. I had no confidence that God was listening. And no one had prepared me for, with ministry of absence, he writes. He goes on to say, God's style often baffles me. He moves at a slow pace, prefers rebels and prodigals, restrains his power and speaks in whispers and silence. Yet even in these qualities, I see evidence of his long suffering, of his mercy and his desire to woo, to draw rather than compel. I love the fact that the psalmist feels like he can say to God, God, where are you? I love that Isaiah says in this prayer, rend the heavens and come down. He's able to say, but God, sometimes it feels like you're hiding your face from me. As I trace back the people who I've walked with, who I respect spiritually, one of the things that I think I respect most deeply in people is not necessarily the strength that they have. It's the honesty that they exhibit. It's the willingness to say, Man, like some days feel like the mountaintop and then some days feel like the valley. And sometimes, God, it feels like intimacy and some days it feels like distance. And they're people who voice honestly their frustration with God and refuse to let go and refuse to let go. And so can I encourage you during this Advent season that this would be a season of waiting it would be a season of anticipating. It'd be a season of preparation. But one of the ways we prepare is by voicing what's honestly going on in our heart. God, I'm frustrated. God, I'm angry. God, I'm disappointed. God, I don't get it. God, why didn't you move like I thought you would and prayed that you would? Why didn't you rend the heavens and come down? And one of the ways we prepare to receive his presence is by voicing honestly some of our frustration and our disappointment. Here's the thing. Here's the beautiful thing. If it's in you, God knows it already. So you can tell him. There's no danger there. He knows already. 
you can tell him. And it does something to our soul when we do. Uh, Here's the way that Isaiah ends this section of the passage. He says, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are the work of your hands. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. And here's the fourth point, and I'd encourage you to write it down. What, the last way we wait well, according to Isaiah, is by reaffirming our dependence on God. There's two metaphors that Isaiah uses. One is that of a father, and we are his children. We're, we're waiting on our Abba, on, on Papa God, to step in and to hold us. And we're like the clay, the clay of a pot. Both of these pictures are pictures of dependency. The child doesn't control the father. The clay doesn't, or the clay doesn't control the potter. They are at his fingertips to be used however, to be formed and shaped however, but they're dependent. They're dependent. And one of the ways that we wait on God well is by recognizing that we're waiting on God that we don't get the chance to control him, that he's bigger, that he's stronger, that he's more powerful, that that he's like the father and that he's like the potter and we are the clay in his hands. See, dependency is not a sign of weakness. It's actually strength of faith. It's people who humbly come before God, people who experience God's presence. They are people who express dependence. Let me say that again. People who experience God's presence are people who express dependence. Will you be that kind of person? Dependence like a lump of clay, dependence like a daughter or son needing to be loved. So that's how Isaiah teaches us we wait well. That's how Isaiah teaches us that we position our soul to cry out for our deepest need, which is his fullest presence. We remember his faithfulness. We admit our shortcomings. We voice our frustration and we posture our soul. We reaffirm, God, we are completely and wholly dependent on you. So now, now let's talk about how do we bring this into the soil and the soul of our daily life here on earth? So where we've been so far, we've seen that uh, really we're not looking for an answer from God. We're, we're looking for an arm around us. That that's our deepest longing is God's fullest presence. And so what does that really look like? What does that look like on the ground? What does that look like in real life? What does that look like for us as a community of faith this Advent season? Uh, I think the first thing it means is and you can write this down, that we need to expect God's presence in our life. That one of the things we learn as we embark on the season of Advent is that God loves to meet people exactly where they're at. And if Christmas teaches us anything, it teaches us that God comes in unexpected ways and in unexpected places. Uh, I love the way that Eugene Peterson paraphrases it in his translation of the message when he says this. He says, 
the word became flesh and blood, speaking about Jesus, and moved into the neighborhood. He says, we saw his glory with our own eyes, one of a kind glory, like the father, like the son, generous inside and out from start to finish, true. I love that translation. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. What would it look like in your life if you started to expect the presence of God? Not just in church services, but in your everyday life. Like when you're shopping in the market, what if you started to expect God's presence to show up or when you're on a walk or when you're going to work? What if we started to have eyes to see it and a heart to look for it? Here's the second thing to put our feet on the ground this Advent season and to really start to wait on God and hope for his presence. Here's what it looks like. It means that we not only expect it, but that we enjoy God's presence when it shows up, when it shows up in those strange places. I think a lot of times we envision the spiritual life being someplace where we're trying to find God in a, in a church or in a temple. But what if we started to just expect him and enjoy him when we when he did show up and what if we started to envision walking with Jesus as looking for opportunities to realize where he is already at work in our lives Um, Aaron was telling me a story about a missionary earlier today and he used to have this saying that when missionaries go to Africa they're not bringing God with them they're going to find the ways that God is already at work Uh, That's our approach as we're here. We're convinced God is at work in this marketplace, in the lives of people, and in your life too. So what if you started to become a detective about the ways God's at work, expecting it, and then when you find it, to take time to actually enjoy it? That's part of what it means to be a follower of, of Jesus. And then finally, and then finally, that we not only expect it and we enjoy it, but we also are called to embody his presence. That one of the ways God shows up in the lives of believers is through other people who are followers of Jesus. In fact, just now, uh, we had the opportunity, uh, some of our group had the opportunity to go visit a woman who's in the hospital. When they showed up, they, they bring the presence of Jesus. Uh, Aaron's dad was recently in the hospital and he shared a story with us. One of the things that um, Ivorians do really, really well is they embrace a ministry of presence. And throughout his time in the hospital, his room was filled with people the entire time he was in there. It's a picture of the way God's intended us to live as followers of Christ, that we not only expect and enjoy God's presence, but we embody it, we bring it. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, it says that as we've been comforted from, from God and by God, we take that comfort to other people. What would it look like for you this Christmas season to embody the presence of Jesus in the lives of other people? I think it would take a few things from you. I think it would mean that you had to be intentional. Because man, our culture is very different from this culture that we're in right now here. This culture values presence, they value visiting people, they value being with people in a different way than we do. I've noticed that already. What if we were intentional about being with people this Christmas season? I think the second thing we'd have to be is available. To say back to God, God, I don't know how you'd want to use me, but I'm willing to be used, whatever it looks like. And then I think the third thing it would mean is that we're flexible, that this doesn't happen on our schedule. It happens on God's.
Man, I just want to encourage you uh, to start to expect, enjoy, and embrace God's presence with you. And so my prayer for us as a community of faith this Advent season is that we would wait, that we would wait intentionally, and that we would wait well, hoping, expecting, and anticipating God's presence in our life and in our church. We join with all followers of Jesus around the globe, and our prayer is, O come divine Messiah, O come divine Messiah, the world in silence waits the day when hope shall sing its triumph and when sadness flee away.